Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. We've got to figure out how to engage disaffected progressives and disgruntled conservatives if we're going to come through this with a healthier democracy and an ability to move forward. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Evan Burfield. Evan is currently the CEO of Helm, an ambitious 90-person firm building a software and data platform for helping organizers and issue advocates build a more equitable world. Helm is co-founded and funded by Emma Bloomberg, the daughter of Michael Bloomberg. Evan positions Helm as having a central focus on supporting the broad pro-democracy movement in the United States and as a competing organizing platform to those located primarily with the Democratic and Republican parties. As some people know, I've been tracking and participating in the political technology space since the 1980s, and Evan and Helm are among a recent wave that is attracting more talent and funding and attention than was previously available. Evan has a great story about his path as an entrepreneur, investor, and author with expertise in civic tech, regulatory hacking, and global startup ecosystems. I asked him about how he came to co-found and run Helm, which operated in self-mode until recently, and about what he sees as the guiding philosophies for Helm and how they are going about building an enterprise. You should listen. Evan's episode coincides with the development of the great Battlefield podcast. I was asked recently to join the Democracy Group, which is a network of podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. It's located at the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, which produces the Democracy Works podcast in partnership with their local NPR station. You can expect some upcoming interviews with some of the hosts of other podcasts in the network. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Evan Burfield at Helm. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Evan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, I'm Evan Burfield. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Helm. Um, Quick biography. Wow. I was born in Falls Church, just outside of D.C. Aside from a few years in London in my 20s, have basically lived in the D.C. area my whole life. I graduated from the local science high school and have been a startup. Thomas Jefferson? Yeah. 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 And have basically been a startup junkie ever since. 
So I've either been, you know, founding or over time advising and funding, incubating <laughs> startups really throughout my entire career and have only kind of gotten more into uh, a lot of the sort of civics and politics work uh, quite late in my own journey. How was that Thomas Jefferson for you? Ooh, that's a big question. At the time for me, it was a bit of a godsend. I had gotten, you know, I think as a lot of entrepreneurs do, I don't handle authority well. I think traditional public education is somewhat long on expecting kids to, you know, conform to authority. I'd gotten kicked out of third grade. I'd gotten kicked out of sixth grade. I had to go through various, you know, private schools that my parents had to like drain their 401ks for. I was sort of the the bad kid on a bad trajectory that was sort of constantly in trouble. And I applied for TJ on a total lark. I'm 45. So TJ was very different back then than it is today. And back then it was sort of a more of a weird, legitimately geek school. And, you know, probably easier to get into than it might be today. But I sort of applied on a lark because I was like, this seems cool. And got in. And, and honestly, it was kind of like a, a halfway house for smart socially awkward kids, which was great for me. Um, and it enabled me to kind of find my place a little bit more. I heard you reference somewhere that you started rowing at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, was that in high school or was yeah. that later? No, that was in high school. Yeah. I, um, you know, I played um, very traditionally. I mean, I played four years of high school football and all of that. But my, my real sport, my real love ended up becoming rowing. I was a captain of the rowing team. I just got deeply into it. It was, it was sort of the first time that I really was like part of a team and part of a, a bonding with other people and kind of learning leadership and how do you get people together to go do a hard, hard challenge and all that stuff. And, um, and it's also a sport that like you can be really like not super coordinator athletic, but if you're willing to like work really hard and be disciplined, you can get really good at it, uh, which was good for me. Yeah, I... I I think that those kind of competitive and sort of learning discipline type experiences make a difference down the road if you have them to reference. I remember even for my first three years on the rowing team, like I was, I was still sort of the, the other, the outsider. Like I didn't fit into a team well. I remember my coach pulling me aside um, right at the end of my junior year and he was like, so I, I think I'm going to make you the captain next year. And I was like, Really? Really? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, like I, I either you're either going to sit outside the group and and do your own thing and throw stones or I think I'm going to put you into a leadership role. And I think that's going to be really good for you in the group. And it was the first time in my life anybody had said, maybe you should maybe you should lead. Maybe you should kind of take some responsibility for a, a team or a group. Why do you think he did that? I think he did it because he recognized that at the time I was like a lot of really localized dynamics. I was the only junior on a boat at the time that was all seniors. They all graduated. It, there was no scenario in which I wasn't going to be an influential person on the team. And I think his logic was for the team's purpose, like having that really influential person be in some sense outside of the structure was either going to be um, bad or it could be good. I think as a mentor to me, I think it was also that he just saw, um, I, I hope he saw leadership potential. And I hope he saw that like, if I, if I was given responsibility, I could step up to it. Whereas before that kind of 
every authority figure throughout my life had always told me like that. I, they told me I was irresponsible, not go be responsible, if that makes it does. Yeah. Did it change your self-conception? 100%. How so? I've never like from that point onward, there has not been a moment in my life where I have not been leading teams. That sounds tremendously pivotal. You had mentioned that you went to college, I believe, at Oxford. Did you go st straight there from? No. From, what was the educational path? I, uh, as I said, I, I sort of had never really fit all that well into kind of traditional public education, even, even at TJ. When you arrive as a freshman at Thomas Jefferson, at least back then, like I, I remember very, very poignantly this like first presentation that we had in the student auditorium where they got all the freshmen together. And, and I'm paraphrasing, but the message was something like, you've now gotten into the finest high school in the country. If you work hard and do what you're told, you will get into the finest universities in the country. And that was it. And, and I remember like as a freshman in high school being like, yeah, and then what? Like, then I'm going to go get hired by the finest corporations. And then at some point, I'm going to wake up at 45 years old and go <laughs> like, ah. Like, I just wanted no part of that. And I, I was the only member of, you know, I'm revealing a tremendous amount of privilege in my upbringing. But like, I was the only member, not just of my graduating class, but the one before mine and after mine that didn't go immediately to college. What did you do? I originally was going to go travel around Europe. So I... Um, I needed money. I got a job uh, working uh, at a VR headset manufacturer. This is long ago. So the VR headsets were not exactly the Oculus Rift, right? These ginormous things for industrial applications. And so I, my first job out of high school was as a lab assistant in an optics research lab. Um, and in parallel with that, I ended up through the kinds of bizarre happenstance that seemed to end up defining a lot of the coolest things that have happened to me in my life. I ended up starting a, a, um, a startup. Um, somewhat incidentally, my, my girlfriend was a year behind me in school. Um, I wasn't going to college, so I was bumming around her house a lot. Her father and I ended up having this whole conversation over dinner one night about like how bad at the time, and remember this was 1996, like how awful financial planning tools were at the time. And we ended up like over dinner ideating on a much better way to sort of model personal financial systems. And I ended up writing the prototype for that. And then I ended up going and pitching investors and he and I ended up starting a company. Like I wanted to go travel and read literature and be a philosopher. Instead, I ended up becoming an entrepreneur. And so that was my whole first startup was, was started that way. And that was net decide. That was net decide. That was kind of going through the entire dot-com boom, dot-com bust, that whole journey from, you know, 18 or 19 all the way through to like 23 or 24 years old. Kind of a, an alternate college for you. Absolutely. Uh, a, a very, um, very pragmatic and very, at times, kind of brutal. I mean, like, particularly back then, you know, you you sort of figure things out or, or the organization dies pretty quick in terms of the startup world. And so I... Um, yeah, it sort of forced me to learn a tremendous number of interesting things at a very young age. Yeah, and then basically we went through the dot-com boom, we went through the dot-com crash, we'd gotten up to 120, 150 employees, we raised 20, 30 million in capital. We got a lot of the largest financial institutions in the world using the platform, then the dot-com crash happened and it was like, 
back to like feeling somewhat wizened at 45. Like I, I sit there with a lot of entrepreneurs today and I'm like, you guys haven't actually experienced a bad market for startups. Most of the startups out there today. Hard to overstate if you didn't live through it, like how fast the music stopped and how quickly everything did. So we, you know, had to get the company to profitable as fast as we could. We had to lay off half the team. And I like personally sat through and laid off 65 people at a very young age, which has massively impacted <laughs> a lot of how I think about organizational building since then. And then uh, I had brought in an outside CEO and... A couple of months after that, the board came to me and was like, you know, we think we should bring in a new CEO. You know, would would you be supportive of that? And would you be willing to kind of step in an interim basis? And I remember very dramatically saying, if you get rid of Kate, you're going to have to get rid of me because I hired her and I'm loyal to the end. And then two days later, uh, one of my board members walked into my office and said, great, you're fired. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> like, how is that possible? Hey, um, what ownership did you have at the time? Six, seven percent of the company. Yeah, because you'd raise so much money. Yeah. yeah. You raised a lot of money. Valuations were a lot lower back then. Yeah. But I mean, my settlement from all of that was enough for me to go um actually then go to Europe and study philosophy, which is what I had originally intended to do. So I went to Oxford and You must have had an interesting application yeah. to Oxford. I mean I had a two point three, two point four GPA. In high school. In high school. Yeah. Good um, scores. Yeah, very good scores. Um but, and a and very then you'd run a company. <laughs> yeah, and then I'd run a company. So very, very non-traditional. But actually, like, Oxford relishes eccentricity, yeah. which is another reason why I really, really, really thrive there. Why it sort of remains yeah. probably the places in the world I've been happiest. And so, yeah, they actually loved that. They, they did really well with that. My wife spent time at Oxford uh, her year abroad in college. And it was a challenging thing for her to adapt to the way they do work there. Yeah. Uh, how, how was that for you after time off? I think it's hard sometimes to leave school and then come back. Was it for you? In a sense, mainly because I went from a place of generally having authority. And often in some sense, you know, I, I was a, shall we say, vastly less mature leader at, at 23 than I hope I am today. But like, you know, probably wasn't great at setting up structures in which people could consistently tell me no or tell me if I was wrong or off base. That it, Oxford is the antithesis of that. Like the whole pedagogy is basically you're given a paradox, a question that has no right answer. You have a week to go off and read 40 books and write a 2000 word essay and then come back to defend that analysis in front of one of the foremost experts in the world on that topic. And they just beat the crap out of you intellectually <laughs> week after week after week after week. Nobody teaches you anything. You just sort of learn by reasoning. Like my first term was hard. Like I still remember writing one of my first philosophy essays and the, the, the markup on the margin I will never forget was something like, you know, Mr. Burfield, if you insist upon using philosophical terms, I suggest you invest in a reputable philosophical dictionary. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think that's a compliment. I think that's, no. <laughs> I think that's a, um, but I ended up, I, I, I utterly loved it. I think what I had at 25 going and doing my undergrad was something I wouldn't have had at 18, which is like, this was a choice for me. Like I was paying for it. I wanted to be there. I had chosen to be there. And I was deeply aware, even at that age, like of how short three years is, right? Your undergrad at Oxford is only three years. And it was sort of like, I want to get the absolute most out of this that I possibly can in the time that I'm here. 
because I know I'm going to have to go back to the real world at some point, and this is a special thing. Were you working also while you were there? Yeah. So I, uh, one of my board members from NetDecide connected me up with a friend in London, and um, almost the entire time I was studying, I was also heading up um, strategy and technology for a private equity firm in London. So I'd spend usually two days a week in London with a suit on doing private equity work. And then I'd spend the rest of my time, you know, drinking beer in the junior common room at my college and playing rugby and rowing. I was the captain of the rowing team at Oxford too, and or at my college at Oxford and um, studying and doing all that. And so it was sort of the really weird, like studying, studying things in the abstract and then seeing how they got applied in the real world, which was kind of cool. Did you have a sense of how different your path was than most people? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I always feel like in my life, I made this sort of one decision at 18 that I could never really articulate why I made it, which is, eh, I'm not going to go do the thing everybody else is. And like, I've always felt in some sense, it sort of set me off on this weird cascading set of amazing life experiences that I'm deeply grateful for. I mean, like unbelievably unique and privileged experiences that like, I don't, I don't think I ever really got back into the normal flow of things at that. No, no. I mean, I think one thing builds on another in life and you open opportunities to yourself by having done things before. And that seems to have happened for you. I I have always thought of my life as a series of adventures. Like I can't stand the term career. I don't want to have a career. When I sort of look back and self-reflect, it feels like I've had this incredible, unique set of adventures where I've gotten to go meet amazing people and hopefully have impact on the world and learn and grow. And, you know, that for me, sometimes adventures come to a close and then you go find the next adventure and you try to serve people and you try to lead and you try to go do what the world needs. But like, you know, I'm, if I am passionate, if I'm committed, like I think I can be a really formidable leader and I can really make things happen. And if I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, I'm horrible. Like I'm not, I'm not good at all at anything. And that that's very real for me. I completely relate to that. I think it's an enviable path that you've been on. Um, what was interactive? I spent all this time in Europe. It's basically, I, I read philosophy, politics, economics when I was at Oxford, which is sort of the equivalent of a public policy degree. And I was doing all of this stuff all around the world. And like one of the through lines for me while I was studying public policy at Oxford, but I had come from this sort of very anti-authoritarian, a particular culture of startup and technology. Does it make sense? Like the sort of start, I had come from the startup culture and I'd come from the world of tech. And I was in a very, very traditional setting studying public policy. And, and that created another through line that I think has always been there throughout my journey, which was this sense of if you can bring these two worlds together, you can open up entirely new possibilities. So the startup world is all about changing the art of what's possible, right? The world of technology is, yes, but if we could invent something entirely new, the potential solutions to challenges are greater than we might think. And I always felt like the public policy world that I was engaged in at Oxford always sort of operated within all of these assumed boundaries, 
right? Because you can't do all these other things, here's the only way you can solve these problems. And so in, in a simple way, just to geek out, like, you know, I went really deep into information economics and game theory and all that. And like all of it starts from the premise of because we have imperfect information, there's just a really finite limit to the number of things we can do because of adverse effects and unintended consequences. As a technologist, as a startup person, I was like, oh, so just go change the information imperfections and you can open up entirely new potential solutions. And so, you know, I knew coming out of my time in Europe that I wanted to do something that brought technology and policy together and like the startup ethos and the public policy ethos together. And so my first attempt was Synteractive, which was basically let's go do open gov gov 2.0 stuff and like relatively simple right like let's take a startup mindset and let's take a technology mindset directly into government and we had excellent timing because we happened to do that right like i was working on all of that and incidentally barack obama got elected president and brought a whole different set of people who were thinking about technology and thinking about government and a sort of ethos that people like tim o'reilly and Anish Chopra and you know, Vakundra were all sort of driving this, Jen Palka at Code for America were all sort of driving this sort of open government, Gov 2.0 concept. So we ended up implementing a, a number of those projects uh, for the Obama administration. You know, recovery.gov. We're going to go spend a bunch of money to try to pull ourselves out of the, the um, Great Recession. How do we do that in a way that like allows citizens to see every project as it's happening in real time and track fraud, waste, and abuse and all that? And we ended up implementing that and doing a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, how did it do as a company? I think we were much more interested in Gov 2.0 and OpenGov than we were in the practical business realities of government contracting. And one of the tricks is... If you want to go do all of that stuff, you also have to figure out like all of these things involving contracting vehicles and GWACs and like, I think there was an element of, we were always probably more grounded in the really cool art of the possible than the like practical stuff. And so we never really got all those contracting vehicles and all that stuff in place. And so in the end, we ended up selling the company to the larger government contractor that sort of ended up controlling all of our contract vehicles. Who, who was that? Smartronics. Was 1776 next for you? Yeah. Yeah. That's where, by the way, I ran across you yeah. originally. Yeah. It was, had office a couple uh, up from us, from, yeah. from where my company was. And I did a little bit of coaching yeah. of some of your residents, I guess. Yeah. We sold Sinteractive to Smartronics and I, you know, as those things go, had to sort of stay for a year, you know, helping to transition relationships and contracts. But I didn't, you know, I didn't really have that much to do compared to like building a business. And so um, as these things go, I, I sort of got bored and I got antsy. And probably two months after we had sold the business, I got a call from a friend who invited me to a meeting that uh, was happening at the Case Foundation related to an initiative called Startup America. The meeting was run by a woman named Donna Harris. And that was sort of, hey, introduce the premise of Startup America. It's really, really, really bad for the country if the only place that you can go to work on amazing things and feel like you can be part of the sort of economic ascendancy is San Francisco or at the time, kind of maybe New York. Um, 
And so the Startup America Initiative was a joint project from the Kauffman Foundation, Case Foundation, and the White House to sort of try to foster startup ecosystems in all of the other cities and states in America. And so the meeting that I got pulled to kind of introduced that concept and said, we also need a chapter here in D.C. And let's talk about the D.C. startup ecosystem and as a group of potential leaders. I didn't think at the time I had any particular interest in it, and I thought the concept was um, way too abstract. I think my posture at the meeting was sort of, if you really wanted to go do this, you wouldn't be doing all this stuff. You'd go do this, and you'd do it with urgency. But it doesn't seem like that's what you guys want to do, so uh, you know that, that's what y'all want to do. But I've said my piece, and then meeting ends, and Donna asks me to hang back, and... She basically goes, I think you should lead Startup DC. And I was like, I don't really, like, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a for-profit entrepreneur. Like, that's what I do. I don't really do non-profit community organizing-y stuff. And she's like, I think you'd be really good at it. And um, Who was she? So Don was uh, born in Canada and immigrated to the U.S. Um, had done a couple startups in Michigan and, like, really personally felt, like, what is it like to try to build high-impact startups in a community where you have no resources? One of them really ended up scaling, and they ended up leveraging a lot of public affairs techniques to sort of scale the business um, in the education space. Then she went to go work for that public affairs firm. And then Startup America ended up recruiting her to, re to run the sort of regional program for the Startup America initiative. So she kind of said, I think she would do this. And I had this sort of year that I, I could spend. And so I got um, really into it and discovered actually a lot of the skills of being an entrepreneur were super applicable to sort of trying to do this sort of community organizing work. And you know, a lot of stuff I talk about now, and I, I continue to sort of learn from a lot of the organizers that we support at Helm, like a lot of those instincts got forged in that sort of work of how do we call people in? Like, how do we bring lots of different groups, lots of different types of people who don't think of themselves yet as part of a startup ecosystem, all kind of working for a goal, which is to, at the time, make the DC region a lot more economically vibrant and become a place where you could be creators and build things and do all of that, which particularly 10, 12 years ago was just not how DC thought of itself, right? As a government town. Through that work over the course of that year, I got exposed and I got to learn from what Techstars was doing because they were kind of just getting off the ground and what 500 Startups was doing and what Y Combinator was doing and what 1871 in Chicago was doing. And Don and I would kind of go on a lot of these trips and visit other cities and talk to other ecosystems. And it was like, wow, we need so much infrastructure for DC that sort of doesn't exist yet. Like we need these other kinds of things. And that ended up leading to a conversation Don and I had that was like, hey, we should we should build that infrastructure. We should build this thing, which was, was actually going to be called Rethink for almost its entire formative period. And at the very last minute, we were like, you know what, let's just be, let's just be really bold and call it 1776. And that was how, you know, we, I got into the world of running incubators and, <laughs> and community events and ultimately became a venture capitalist and all that stuff. Because you, you invested in some of the... Yeah. Firms. So one of the challenges was DC has a tremendous amount of untapped capital, right? DC is a, a very, very wealthy community. But at the time, in particular, relatively little of that capital was going to startups. And so we sort of started mapping out where is the wealth in the DC community and how do we piece by piece make the case as to why they should allocate some of that wealth towards 
helping startups here in the DC area to grow, particularly ones that are solving problems that are well set up for the sort of social and political capital that we have in DC as well. You uh, also wrote a book about how to build companies in spaces that that are involved with government that are complicated. So the, the is that, does that yeah, come out of that experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, or, the origin point to 1776 was build the startup ecosystem in DC. What we found is that like what is DC? What makes DC unique? What makes DC unique is we have an incredible amount of expertise and networks and connections that relate to regulated markets. And so we ended up building 1776 really focused on helping startups that were trying to solve problems in education or healthcare or transportation or energy or government services. And um, then at a certain point, we, we realized, wow, we're getting really good at this. And there's probably startups all around the world that have the same problems. And we started launching different global programs and engaging with that. And that afforded me this incredibly unique opportunity at just pattern recognition. And one of the patterns that emerged is that all these startups were trying to sort of apply the Silicon Valley playbook, you know, move fast, break things, disrupt to regulated sectors in which elements of that playbook were actually very insightful and other parts were the exact worst thing you could do. And so as we sort of learned all of that, it became clear that there, there needed to be a new playbook. There needed to be a new way of thinking about how do you do disruptive innovation in sectors in which consequences really, really matter. You want to launch new nuclear reactors to affect climate change, you can't move fast and break things, right? Like, you can't do a minimum viable product and iterate and get feedback. Yeah, it doesn't or, quite fit. Or you or, can apply or, elements yeah. of that, but you have to do it in a different way. Yeah. I ended up doing a podcast with Andreessen Horowitz. It was supposed to be about global markets, and instead we started talking about regulatory hacking. It ended up going um, down that whole rabbit hole and... They have a pretty big platform. And then a, actually, I got an email that was one of those ones that I thought was like a Nigerian prince email. It had no like footer, it had no header, whatever. It's like from a personal email address. And it was like, hey, I work at Penguin Random House. I, I heard your podcast. I really think this needs to be a book. Would you be willing to write it? Yeah, that's cool. Uh, and so I ended up writing the book. What was the podcast called? Uh, it was the... Now they have an entire, like Andreessen Horowitz has this massive media platform. It was really early on. Well, I think they literally called the podcast Regulatory Hacking. A lot of the, the sort of point that I made in the book, which is also the one that sort of pulls from 1776's ethos, was that, you know, there's a tremendous amount that's very powerful about the startup world, but there's also a tremendous amount that's very wrong about the startup world. And one of those is, you know, often solving the wrong problems, if you look at it from what does society need? which is often anchored in who is getting centered and who has the privilege to solve those problems. If your conception of who makes a great entrepreneur is a 25-year-old white male living in San Francisco, you're going to get one very real lens into what are the most important problems in the world, which is whatever 25-year-old white men sitting in San Francisco think they are. And that gets back to where you're building startups. And so connecting all those threads together, like if you can change where you're building startups and who's building them, you're also going to open up a much broader range into what are the important problems to go solve. And, and you need to be educated and you need to have resources and understand how you go do that kind of innovation. I don't remember when it came to my attention that you were working on a startup in the political tech <laughs> world, I had talked on my podcast to 
Lucy Caldwell, who had mm -hmm. been a cr crowd mm -hmm. scout. I had talked to Brian Rich, who was at Murmuration. Yep. Uh, still is, I think. And I had talked to some folks from the Tuesday Company before they were acquired and, yep. and right after. You started connecting some dots I, somewhere. Well, there. and I heard that you were that there was this thing called TechCo mm -hmm. that was in quote stealth mode. And I was curious. I think I reached out to you. Mm -hmm. You were uh, unresponsive at the time um, because uh, it was in stealth mode. <laughs> yes. And I read. There's been a couple articles about you guys uh, out there about a number of acquisitions that you made at the start. CrowdScout, an organizer, yes. and Tuesday Company. What's the founding story for what has become Helm? <laughs> I really, really loved what I was doing. Like getting to find and invest in incredibly inspiring and often very diverse entrepreneurs solving really important problems that can improve people's lives and helping them to be successful. I mean, that's a good life. It's a lot of fun. The disruption in that for me was very much... 2016, Trump getting elected, which happened almost simultaneously with me having kids. My wife, Vera, is born and raised in Russia. Her father comes from a Ukrainian family. She was always sort of raised to get out as soon as she could. She came here when she was 20. But we sort of through line in our relationship was always sort of talking about, you know, her, her father was out there in front of tanks with Yeltsin in 91 and, and sort of the arc of how did what felt like a very liberally ascendant period for Russia across the nineties and into the two thousands slowly evolve into an increasingly repressive situation that sort of conversation, that dialogue had really informed me. And I'd gotten to spend a lot of time, you know, in Russia with her family, with all of that. And like, I don't know, just, it was so incredibly clear to me, even through the primaries and, and the, the 2016 Republican National Convention, like all of it at the time, I was like, he's going to get elected. He's going to engage in a lot of criming. He's going to get a lot of people complicit in that. The consequences of losing power are going to be dire. He's going to tear the system down. And this is at least a generational challenge in front of us to figure out how to prevent the trajectory that other countries have gone in from happening here in America and, and building a better democracy. You were way ahead on that. Yeah. There, there are so many people who didn't grasp the pattern that he was following, I think, the authoritarian playbook. Mm -hmm. People who studied it, there's now dozens of books that track it. Was it because of Vera that, that you think you saw it through yeah, that lens? It, look, I, back to sort of opportunities, inc incredibly privileged opportunities that I've had. Like, I've spent a lot of my life abroad. I studied American politics in Europe. I am a deeply patriotic American. I named, you know, Don and I named our startup incubator 1776, right? Like the ideals, the potential, the vision of what America can be down into my bones. But I've also, in some sense, always been another. And so to me, the sort of, the faith that everything always turns out okay because we're America, like, no, 
things turn out okay because people step up and they get organized and they they commit their lives and they work really hard to to bend that curve towards a better future incredibly hard. And if you don't do that, bad, bad, bad things can happen. You study history, you go spend time in other countries, you see these patterns. There is nothing intrinsic in America that makes us immune to things that have happened to other cultures and other countries and things that are happening to other cultures and other countries. For whatever reason, that was just very, very poignantly clear to me in 2000. I mean, and, and my literal break point was watching Trump and Putin on stage in Helsinki. And I was like, I cannot do anything at this point for my kids, for my country. Like, this is going to be the challenge of a generation. I can't be doing anything other than trying to work in this. But at the time, I didn't know anything about politics. I wasn't, I was not involved in electoral politics. I didn't come from the world of politics. If I knew anything about politics, it was through the lens of how do I help startups do stuff which which also, I think, brought me into this, again, in a place of being a bit of an other and a bit of a learner and explorer, not I know the answers, if that. If that. So, yeah, it makes sense. The The question I asked was, like, what's the founding story? So, so, the, founding said, story, so yeah. the founding story was, so I literally, I, at that point, I, I saw Trump and Putin on stage in Helsinki. I I made that, like, that the decision for me was almost that much. And then I started calling friends. And going, I don't know about this. Like, I don't know about this world. I know something about building organizations. I know something about technology. I know something about raising capital. But like, how can I help? And my entry point into it, like the area in which I had people putting their hands up the most urgently going, we need help, we need help, was actually a lot of the democracy reform world. And I, and I tend to sort of think in terms of system change. And I always viewed... Trump and that authoritarian instinct as a symptom, not a root cause, right? The root cause is something more dire. Trump took advantage of that. So the question of how do you build a better system? How do we build a healthier, more vibrant democracy was always how I looked at it. And so a lot of the democracy reform world is like, we need, we need help. We need, we need, and I was like, okay, this is the kind of stuff I can help with. I'm not a comms expert. I'm not a campaign expert. I'm like, but like, what can I do? And the answer was we need technology and data. And I was like, say more. I know about technology data. I was like, well, like there's a progressive tech stack and there's a conservative tech stack. It's very awkward if you're trying to look at it through the lens of improving the system to leverage either stack because you often have to work with somewhat diverse coalitions of people and neither tech stack necessarily works great for that. And then more broadly, the progressive tech stack is really good at knowing about voters who... (laughs) model out to lean towards the Democratic Party and the conservative tech stack is very good at the other, at at the conservative voter. Whereas if you're looking at it through the lens of how do we build a better system, it's almost more important to understand all of those people who are increasingly opting out of our politics, which at the time, I I think the view was that neither system was really looking at it through that lens. And, you know, I was staying up to like two, three in the morning every night, just pouring through like pew typology data and just like trying to get and trying to help these groups. And I and remember really clearly, you know, Vera's a data scientist, works for Morning, Morning Consult now. She didn't at the time, but at the time she was working on a graph project and she kept laughing at me because she's like, you realize like you're trying to do all this Excel. If you, if you knew what you were doing and you could use Jupyter Notebook, you could do this in like two hours. And I'm like, well, I don't. And I want to actually understand the data. And she was like, well, what are you working on? 
And we're literally like sitting around in bed, each one we're working on our projects. And I was like explaining all of the data. And she's, she goes, shouldn't this all just be a graph? Like, shouldn't you be modeling all 240 million people based on the relationships between them and, and communities and how they interact with each other? And we, we just started talking through all of that. And I was like, yeah, like that's what we should be doing. And, and so this sort of idea of a civic graph emerged. Like how do we think about people based on their cultural identity within the communities and within the influence that they have around them. How do you start to think about politics in that way? How do you model that from a data standpoint? What would be involved? Put together a, a sort of plan and started looking for investors. At that process, I got connected up with Michael Slavey, who you may know. I do. CTO. Guest on the Obama's, podcast a couple times. Yeah. Obama's CTO in 2008. Almost shocking that Michael and I didn't know each other. Right. We graduated from high school in the D.C. area the same year. Like we'd all been involved in this sort of politics tech, but we'd actually never met. We had like 2000 LinkedIn connections in common. He and I like hit it off right out of the gate. And I'm like, I think there should be this thing called a civic graph. And I think we should be able to understand people with a lot more nuance and all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, like, great. We knew that coming out of 2012. And I was like, okay, so like, why doesn't it exist? And he, so he starts explaining to me all of the ways in which innovation in sort of civic tech and political tech is broken and the ascendancy of presidential campaigns for driving innovation, but how presidential campaigns are not relevant to most other campaigning and like monopolies and all this stuff. And I was like, okay. And he goes, so really you have a funding problem. Like you got to go find really long-term patient partners who believe what you believe and can help you build this across political cycles. So he had already tried something like this yeah. with, with Schmidt. With Tim Schultz. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, and that, I think it's or, a little bit. Go ahead. Um, with groundwork, with, with, ground. with groundwork and Tim Schultz and all those work there. Yeah. So he, he'd been thinking about this problem really yeah. deeply. Uh, and I think, you know, from his own experiences, was sort of the insight of to, to do this, you have to do it across political cycles, which is hard. And so I, I was, you know, through that lens, was talking to more and more investors. One of the angel investors in NetDecide way back in the day was a gentleman named Rob Stein, who, in addition to doing early angel investing in the DC ecosystem, ended up creating the Democracy Alliance, helped to form Catalyst, a lot of work there. And Rob, I think later in life, and, and tragically, I think Rob Rob died last week. I don't know if you yeah, know. I did. I, and, saw um, I, I saw one of his early presentations that he was carrying around trying to improve the progressive yeah. ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Later in life, Rob had very much moved also into sort of a democracy reform. Like we have to start thinking about the system, not just the party. And I reconnected with Rob, who I'd kind of known for 20 years, but had not, I'd always engaged with him through a startup lens, not a politics lens. He was like, you, you should really, really go get to know Emma Bloomberg. And I was like, okay, say more. And he was like, well, she's, she's, doing really, really interesting work around community organizing, down-ballot elections, education reform. You know, how do you empower community groups <laughs> who are really interested in improving their schools with the capabilities to kind of do this work better? And, and I was like, okay. And, and he connected us and she and I talked for a few, few minutes on the phone and she was like, hey, we have our annual conference of all, whatever it is, 50, 60 of our, at that time, a lot more now, all of our community partners from all across the country are going to be together in New York, kind of talking about the next cycle and what we should do. Why don't you come up? It'd be a good chance for you to get a sense of what we do. So I go up and I was, I was blown away. It was really fascinating to see all of these really localized community groups getting this really sophisticated insights into sort of how do they organize better. 
Um, how do they think about an issue? And, and ed reform is an issue that sits uncomfortably with both political parties, right? Is, is kind of the pattern because you tend to have a large majority support for a pretty reasonable ed reform position, but for a variety of reasons, <laughs> neither political party can get super comfortable with that majority position. Can I ask one question? Yeah. Who is Emma Bloomberg? Ah, so Emma, as she's fond of saying, um, you know, kind of grew up in New York and a formative experience for her was her father showing up at her college graduation to uh, announce that he was running for mayor of New York. And so she's Michael Bloomberg's daughter. And um, she actually ended up getting like her sort of first experience out of college was doing on the ground community organizing and uh, and door knocking like, like and writing content and for her father's first mayoral campaign. And she uh, personally like was going out and doing a lot of the outer borough work, like really going out to all these communities and trying to listen and understand, like, how do you take Michael Bloomberg, CEO and founder of Bloomberg LP, and connect that back to the actual needs of all these communities that were sort of getting left behind? Um, and then she ended up doing work on a lot of those policy issues in her father's administration and then went off and was the chief of staff at Robin Hood Foundation, trying to scale a lot of that work up. Giant anti-poverty nonprofit. Yeah. 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 And um, I think at a certain point concluded on education, which has always been a passion of her because of the sort of need for opportunity, that there was just a limit as to how much <laughs> even a group like Robin Hood could do in terms of trying to inject philanthropic capital to improve schools if you weren't changing the politics of public education. And that led her to a somewhat similar journey, going out to all of these groups, going, who's trying to change the politics of education? What do you need? And one of the conclusions was any one of these groups just doesn't have the scale to organize with the level of sort of sophistication with the kinds of capabilities they need. But if you can put all of the community groups all across the country that all care about these issues in their local community together <laughs> into a consortium with a platform you can actually make the, the the whole vastly greater than the sum of the parts. Was that platform, was that murmuration? That, so, yeah. Okay. So she had, um, so she started murmuration. And so she started, like they started pulling together pieces and they did a lot of their own data work. Um, but they ended up building it on top of CrowdScout. Um, it's in terms of a CRM and they started leveraging organizer because that, like ed reform with local community groups, a lot of door knocking, a lot of person to person contact doing a lot of RCT, really interested in this question of how do you actually build these communities? How do you empower local organizers? How do you get people to show up for really down-ballot elections? Like school board elections are about as down-ballot as you can get. I think we're all learning not too dissimilar from, say, local election <laughs> official races, which have suddenly become really important. Emma and her team had been sort of coming at a similar problem and had reached a similar conclusion about the need for something like a civic craft. And so I show up to this gathering of all their partners. I go to the dinner afterwards. Every seat in the place is taken except for the seat next to Emma. And I'm like, oh, like, everybody's scared to sit next to Emma. So I go up, I sit down and she ended up, she and I ended up talking for. Were you supposed to sit there or you just. No, no, I just, I just did. And, <laughs> and like she and I talked for three and a half hours, like close the place down aligning on on little democracy like like americans anchor the idea of little democracy so hard on elections 
which is probably an end result, right? Like Tocquevillian, like how do you get people to come together again? How do you reinstill compromise and coalitions and finding common ground and building community and and sort of the broader challenges facing our democracy and how issues interplay with that? And I was just incredibly impressed. I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting somebody who was like that obsessed with those details and then getting down to the level of like, data sets and how do you pull data together and the challenges of understanding people. Sounds like she's smart. Yeah. Yeah. And an incredibly hard worker who like (laughs) really, really cares about these details. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, roll forward. She gave me a call. My wife, Avir, and I took the kids to England for vacation and I'm walking through this field in England and I get a call and it's Emma. And she's like, you know, rather than you raising capital to go do a civic craft startup, like we've ended up owning CrowdScout and the organizer tool. You want to build a civic graph to build a civic graph. You're going to need a ton of engagement data, which is going to be easier for you on the tooling. What if you and I put all these pieces together and we go co-found a new thing? And, you know, she and I aligned a lot on our values and what do we believe in and how would we make decisions and what was the vision? And that was the origin. That was the founding story. Did you found a for-profit company? What What is the structure so of... So it is a, a for-profit. Helm is a for-profit. Yeah. It's backed by philanthropic capital from murmuration. Part of what Emma and I really aligned on was how do we make decisions? And um, one of those was the number one criteria we have to apply when we make decisions is does it really help the mission in a long-term sense? What's the mission? Mission of Helm, there's really two components. One is to build a richer participatory democracy, small-D democracy, full civic participation. How do we bring more people back into not just elections, but all the parts of democracy that actually (laughs) allow us to build better communities and build a better country? And, you know, we would say our vision is a more equitable future built by those people with organizing superpowers. And how do we pull together the resources, the intelligence, the data, the tools to equip those organizers to do that work in a better way, to build a better democracy and ultimately to build a more equitable future. So it's an ambitious organization. Yeah. I, I, you know, every time someone joins, one of my favorite parts of my job as CEO of Helm is every month I get to give the culture and values talk to the, to the new Helmates that join you know, one of the things that I always grounded on is is building any organization is hard. You've you've built organizations. Like it's hard. It's hard in ways you don't even understand when you get into it. You can't avoid that. But like building an organization that has a real mission is even harder. It doesn't make things easier. It 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 creates even more challenges at times. But also I think can be a tool for attracting and retaining it can real be. talent. It can be. Yeah. Um and by the way, like the problems that we are seeking to solve, I certainly feel like are the hardest challenges that this generation is going to face and, and probably the most important to solve if 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 we want our children to actually inherit a better America than the ones um, we're on a track to right now. So, yeah, like I, I try to ground everybody who joins Helm and like these are hard problems. So Emma and Murmuration put in a couple companies, tech companies that were in political tech and some money, it sounds like. Long-term capital, yes. Yeah. And uh, put you run the day-to-day. Yeah. So so we have a board. 
Um, Emma's the chair. I run the company on a day-to-day basis. Emma and I are, are very aligned um, on the big strategic decisions. As I said, like almost inevitably the conversation is, you know, is this going to help us advance the broad mission that we have in the long term? And secondarily, does this move us towards sustainability as an organization, right? It takes a lot of resources to do what we do. And one way or another, we need those resources. And, you know, really very tangentially do we create value. But, you know, my own personal anchoring, and I think Emma's anchoring is, you know, if if Helm ends up creating a lot of value, that probably would get recycled right back into the mission anyway, right? Like, it's sort of the ethos. Sounds like Murmuration is a client. Murmuration is a significant strategic customer from whom we learn a tremendous amount because they are out uh, every cycle, every month, every week. Like they have this huge network of partners that are doing community organizing, that are running school board elections and state legislative elections and ballot initiatives. So for us, it is a tremendously rich palette to learn from. And you're providing the tech behind it. Are you also providing the data science or do they have data science on their own that they... So work? they we, we provide the platform, Yeah. Um, obviously to Murmuration and now to lots of other groups. Yeah. Um, and they have their own data science team that really digs in on the politics of public education. Uh, we Our data science team is generally interested in understanding people and organizing that into a civic graph at a more foundational level. Their team is very interested in how do you leverage that to particularly understand school board races and education politics and issues like that, which is, which is also not a totally atypical pattern now with a number of our other customers and partners. We're often, sometimes we will help them understand their issue. In other cases, we're giving them foundational platform and, and they're going off and digging into their the particular issues of, of or particular nuances of their issue. It's my experience when you acquire a tech company that has a software product and you try to bring it together with others mm-hmm. and build your own stuff that it's not as easy as one might think stapling things together might be. Yeah. What's been the sort of tech path for you guys as you you know, had yeah. some things that were, I assume, built with different code bases and, and different. So, yeah. yeah. So we, um, we continue to support Crab Scout, um, you know. So it has its own client base. All, still. all of all. Yeah. All of the groups that are out there right now doing work on Crab Scout or uh, doing work on our, on our platform, like Crab Scout is the foundational CRM. At some point next year, we will start to roll out our next gen platform, which is sort of informed by a, a ton of learnings from CrowdScout and frankly, other groups in the market, which we think will be pretty game-changing in terms of political CRM and the toolkits necessary to go drive outreach and, and all of that stuff. So we have the team that supports CrowdScout. We have a team that is really building out that new platform, constantly driven by learnings from CrowdScout. We have a team that's just focused on the Civic Graph and a lot of the parts that contribute to that. So we also do, we have a a, a tool called Civic Pulse that we we acquired some technology on and that we've sort of enhanced, which is high frequency polling. So we run, you know, five thousand completes every week through random device engagement and other mixed method polling that feeds the graph that sort of hydrates it. And then we have a team that is really really focused on greenfield opportunities, really at the level of what we call hidden civic leaders. So one of our big hypotheses is that, and this is driven by a lot of the learnings from Tuesday Company, which we acquired 
which is that we feel that sort of the first generation of relational organizing had the right ambitions, but maybe didn't didn't fully meet those ambitions. And one of the reasons it didn't is because it was built around the needs of the organization <laughs> of the campaign, not around the needs of actually who is this person in their com- local community and, and what do they need? Like what what's their motivation? And so we really took a lot of the learnings from Tuesday Company and a number of the partners that came with that, kind of tore it up and said, all right, let's let's actually build this the right way backwards from what we call hidden civic leaders. Like who are the people who actually organize day to day inside a neighborhood? And oftentimes they're not recognized and they may be doing a lot of work on behalf of a campaign. The campaign doesn't even know they exist. And so that that's new so stuff that'll come tools out. tools for them that yes. connect to the central core. They, Is that right? They do, although a lot of our like the hero of our story is always the organizer. Like it, it's hard work and it's thankless work and it's often unrecognized work. And so a lot of the new stuff that we're building really anchors on empower them. And if they choose to go affiliate with a broader campaign, great. We have all these tools that that organizations and campaigns can use to make that happen. But the the sort of anchor point for us is like solve the problem for the person who does great work in their community day in, day out, fix their problems, make it rewarding for them. And then it should be a little bit up to them whether they want to bring that network that they have and that social capital that they've built, that trust they built in their community to other causes or other campaigns they care about. I don't have clarity about like who is your client then? Like when you sell this yeah. product, the suite to somebody, I assume you're selling it. Who is an ideal client for you? So um, great question. Our customers today, for us, a lot of the work that we do on hidden civic leaders and kind of tools for organizers, at some point in the future, we'll figure out the path to monetize that. But that's not really the motivation. I think the motivation there is it's it's an important part of (laughs) building a healthier democracy, particularly small d democracy, like full civic participation. Our customers today are organizations, issue advocacy organizations by and large. Um, we don't we do not do a lot of work typically directly with parties. We do some work directly with candidates, but that's relatively rare. The bread and butter for us is issue advocacy orgs, um, often issue advocacy orgs who are doing kind of national, state, and local work, but have a bias towards kind of down-ballot theories of change. I know a little bit from experience that often you want to put some boundary on what customers you entertain in the world of politics and the world of advocacy. Even if your goal is bettering the democracy and helping, uh, there, there are people who are too fringe or too toxic. Where do you guys draw the boundaries on who you will have as customers and who you will not? It's it's a great question. And it's one that we think deeply about and are constantly kind of learning and growing on. The sort of culture of Helm is very much empirical and very much sort of like we we tend to think as scientists. And so sort of the humility of what we actually know today, but confidence in what we can learn over time is really key. And that applies even to those questions. And we don't anchor our filter on who we work with based on political party or even necessarily ideology. There's two things that we would anchor on. One is groups that are genuinely working towards full civic participation, um, that which kind of excludes groups that that we feel are doing things that are damaging to <laughs> a healthy democracy, of which 
a certain authoritarian <laughs> segment of our current political class is absolutely um, a profound concern for us. A lot of that for us is behavioral, right? There's a whole set of like we do content moderation. Like you, there's a whole set of content you can't send through on our platform. Um, but but like one one person's uh, yeah. group that is great for the rights of democracy is another person's enemy. Like take the NRA. The NRA National Rifle Association is considered by some people to be like a very toxic force in the country and other people really value their gun rights and think that they've done a wonderful job of advocating for them. So how well, do you deal a, with something a, like as a, that? As a, as a simple statement of fact, we do not currently work with the NRA. Um, it would be hard to see in any current scenario how the NRA as currently constructed would fit into any bounds of a group that we would work with. Although we do really try to anchor it on the actual work that they're doing and the behavior, not on we won't work with the NRA because we don't like the NRA. It's what are the criteria, right? We actually almost create our own jurisprudence that says, like, if you're sending out um, information that is containing hate or that incites violence or that is uh, stifling civic participation or that we don't believe broadly leads to a equitable future. What about that is untrue? Yeah, huge yeah. part, huge part. Yeah. Huge. And, that's, and that, frankly, like... We do a lot of content moderation and education work on that. And we have to, at times, throttle or suspend accounts and and fire customers because... You, you, have you had to fire customers? While we have not yet fired a customer, we have absolutely had to suspend individual accounts and throttle back on, on sort of their ability to engage in, in certain outreach. You know, our anchor on this stuff is not is not partisanship and it's not necessarily ideology. And so we've had to anchor in two different ways. One is behavioral, right? We don't allow customers on our platform to engage in hate speech, to engage in things that might incite violence, to engage in um, disinformation or misinformation, or frankly, on anything that we believe would sort of suppress full civic participation. And that has required us to uh, really build out a almost a jurisprudence, <laughs> you know, examples, case law, what's what's okay, what's not, how do we handle edge cases, and the processes to do that. We also have a, you know, qualification process that says, while we're not anchoring on ideology or partisanship, we do work with groups that we believe are earnestly working towards a more equitable future for all Americans. And for example, that may well mean that we're open to working with a broad range of different groups on issues of climate and carbon neutrality. We can work with conservative groups that are trying to implement market-based solutions. We can work with very progressive groups that are trying to implement very government-centric solutions. We're not likely to work with groups that don't believe that anthropomorphic climate change is happening or that preserving the environment for future generations is an imperative. Can you give me some examples of groups that you are working with? Yeah, and I was gonna, I was gonna say, like, you know, you you phrased the question originally through a little bit of a who won't we work with. Most of our time is actually spent focusing in on who we do want to work with, and right now we are we're really really focused on the pro democracy movement, and and given that we're a group whose mission is to you know build a more equitable future by giving people organizing superpowers and sort of lean into full democratic participation, it's been really positive to sort of see this 
movement emerging that is anchoring on democracy and strengthening and protecting our democracy as a primary issue, right, that really needs to be organized around. Who in particular are you thinking of there? You know, we um, we divide the pro-democracy movement up conceptually into kind of four buckets. Um, one whole bucket is a whole range of groups that either have been doing this work for a long, long time or are really coming to it very recently post-January 6th, but are sort of very focused on protecting the democracy that we have. Things like really making sure that we have people, Democrats or Republicans of good conscience, managing our uh, elections down to the very most basic <laughs> Uh, local election clerk level who are people of integrity, right? Who are going to run a fair process. We have a lot of that work, right? Who, who are really trying to figure out what do we have to do to make sure that we're not sitting here in January of 2025 responding to a slow moving coup that undermined the basic foundations of liberal democracy that would have been preventable had we done more in 2022 or 2023. So there's the sort of protect the system we have groups. The second big bucket in the pro-democracy movement that we work with are the, the sort of build a better democracy groups. So we worked with Represent.us in 2020 to get Alaskans for Better Elections uh, passed, which got ranked choice voting, open primaries, um, transparency and funding in place in Alaska. Going into a election cycle right now where, you know, Lisa Murkowski is not nearly as concerned or shouldn't be as concerned about a right wing primary challenge as she might have been before. And she has a real chance to get across the line. And interestingly, you have a independent gubernatorial candidate who has a real shot at winning in Alaska because we sort of uh, were able to help groups like Rep Us and Alaskans for Elections go and do the really on-the-ground, nitty-gritty organizing work they had to do to get a ballot initiative passed there, which if you've, if you've done any political work, uh, Nathaniel, in your life in Alaska, like that is real, real serious on-the-ground grassroots organizing. There's also a lot of groups that we're working with that are very focused on sort of showing that democracy can work by really trying to get issues solved. Remuneration itself and the work on ed reform. Can we get our schools doing a better job of making sure that every child can read, can write, knows math, understands how to be good citizens. We do similar work with Digital Climate Coalition, which is trying to get a lot of groups organized digitally at the state and local level around climate change and the urgency and what can we do in our local communities to sort of address this issue. And then finally, there's a fourth bucket, which is Maybe the most interesting, but but the longest term, which is kind of how do we improve the context for democracy, right? A lot of groups that are starting to think really deeply about the media environment, the role of social media. Jonathan hates Atlantic piece, right, about the role of social media. Groups that are really concerned with, with sort of the bowling alone hypothesis that part of the reason our democracy is degrading is because we don't... <laughs> We don't associate. We don't have community anymore. Uh, there's a lot of groups like that, that that we're doing work with that I think are doing some really exciting stuff. Where it gets trickiest for me in, in thinking about this is like, what about local conservatives, Republicans who are operating in normal politics, who are not in the thrall of Trump? That's part of a working democracy. Absolutely. How do you think about how do you think about? supporting pieces of a movement that 
are healthy when some parts at the top are diseased? We would be in vastly more dire states right now today as a country and as a democracy if a whole range of principled Republicans at the state and local level had not refused to go along <laughs> with what Trump wanted them to do and what Eastman and, and Mark Meadows and everybody and Bannon were all trying to organize in 2020. We had a very, very recent um, example of the importance of making sure that um, we do have Republicans of good conscience in various places that, frankly, Democrats are unlikely to be able to win in. When you look forward to work on, on local election clerks uh, this cycle and in 2023, there are places where it is unlikely that we are going to get a Democrat elected. But it is incredibly important that we have a Republican of good conscience who is going to ultimately do their job and run races in a fair and unbiased manner uh, in place. And, and if democracy is really a primary and urgent priority for you as an American or for you as a political organizer or as a funder, like that's got to be part of your strategy. I had someone refer to it as anyone who's part of the popular front against Trumpism. It's a great frame. And going back to some of what you and I talked about earlier, reading history, spending time in other parts of the world, like popular fronts are an incredibly important part of how you defeat authoritarianism. and. Part of the reason that they're hard is often because all of the different constituent parts of a popular front have different priorities and different issues and different ideologies. But if we are going to say that our democracy is genuinely under threat, and I, I believe that it is, then we need to be operating in a context of popular front. I think, you know, what's happened in, in Utah this cycle is really fascinating. You have a uh, a principled conservative who is quite open about the fact that he is a conservative in Evan and Mullen, who has spent by his own, you know, like, you know, I, I know Evan and, and I was talking to him and, you know, he, he talked about the work that he did over three months to go and visit every single Democratic delegate to the Democratic convention across Utah and make the case that the best chance of defeating Mike Lee, who was absolutely engaged with and flirting with uh, the undermining of our democratic system in 2020, the best chance to defeat him is to get Democrats and independents working in coalition with moderate Republicans to get somebody who is going to protect our democracy in place. I was surprised to actually see that willingness to engage in strategic thinking about what is going to be required to protect our democracy. One of the things you have to do as the CEO of a for-profit enterprise is keep some tabs on your competition. Who out there uh, competes with you to help the same set of clients with tech and data? And what do you think of them? Well, one of the reasons that Helm exists is, is that we do think that there is an unmet market in general for groups that are organizing beyond just a partisan context. There's a lot of solutions that provide a lot of data and a lot of insight and tools. If you really are, are trying to organize progressives around progressive causes, and there's a similar ecosystem for conservatives, but we think there's a lot of Americans who don't fall into those buckets. And we think there's a lot of issues that need a broader theory of change if we're going to make progress on it and reform being one of those. So, so in, in general, 
we exist because of, of that gap. To answer your question more specifically, um, you know, generally our value prop starts with, with intelligence and data, with how we can help groups to sort of understand who they need to engage, what permission structures and messages and messengers and, and who they are and how to target them and, and all of that. And then flows through into giving them the tools to allow them to sort of take action on that in a, in a scalable way. So, you know, if you look at different parts of what we're doing, we bump into a, a nation builder or a sales force sometimes at the CRM level. Sometimes we bump into an NGP van, but in general, we're not like our focus is not how do we serve kind of the core Democratic Party and Democratic state parties in that apparatus, you know. Van does a good job of that. And, and there's groups like Civitech that, <laughs> you know, really aspire to be able to sort of offer new solutions to the, the Democratic Party and the core progressive ecosystem. We're really interested in the groups that are trying to organize new voters in, in new and different ways. How do we help them and how do we support them? If you're talking about data and intelligence and stuff, are you then overlapping with uh, the kind of the civises and the blue labs that are that are in that space, the analytics space? You know, it's worth remembering that, you know, a lot of the groups that make up the pro-democracy movement right now, which is, again, a big focus for us, like a lot of these groups didn't exist before 2016. And they spent a lot of the sort of period between 2016 and 2020, like evolving from someone uh, building a Twitter audience into an actual organization. And they're, they're just reaching a level of sophistication where they need the kinds of tools and data and intelligence that we can provide. Most of them are not at a point where they're going to be able to go out and afford a, a significant consulting engagement with a Civis or a, um, or a Blue Labs. Like, you know, an awful lot of the groups that are really on the front lines of the pro-democracy fight right now that are trying to get election clerks of integrity in place or secretaries of state or trying to figure out how do you engage maybe conservatives who don't necessarily resonate with the Democratic Party, but are really uncomfortable with where the Republican Party is moving towards. Like most of those groups would be overjoyed to have a fraction of the funding that's probably going to go into the Arizona Senate race this cycle, right? Like the scale of funding is is pretty different. And so we really try to understand the needs of, of the pro-democracy movement broadly. We listen a tremendous amount. We ask questions. We, we try to understand their theories of change and where they're focusing and then provide them with solutions that can allow them to really do that work more scalably. But we're, we're definitely not in the sort of Civis or Blue Labs. We'll just come in and kind of do consulting on a custom basis. Makes sense. I'm curious about what it's taken from you in terms of leadership to build this company. You start out with some pieces, as you've told me, you know, some, some, previous software companies, but you have to hire up, you have to provide direction. Tell me about what it's been like to, to scale this from the beginning to the 90 people you have now or whatever it is. Leadership's a big, big word. I guess it's just an anchor point. I have had a tremendous amount of, of privilege and I've, I've had the sort of opportunity to be leading organizations for most of, of my adult life in various ways. We talked about in sort of my bio. But I, I think I'm a very different leader today than I probably was in previous iterations, partially because I've, I've done some things that I am tremendously proud of in my career, but I've also screwed a lot of things up and learned a lot of lessons from that. And, and also just in terms of a life sort of situation, like I'm, I'm a 
I'm a parent of a four and a six year old now. Like I, I just like life changes you. And in maybe 1776, like I was very front and center in driving strategy and, and being a public facing spokesperson and sort of out there all the time. And, and that's very different than how we built Helm. I put a, a ton of time on culture, right? Like Helm has a very distinctive culture. Like we are, we are at our core, like, scientists. We, we take a very empirical view on this work. Right? We are constantly out asking questions. We are obsessed with understanding human civic behavior and how to turn that into data and tools that can help groups in the space. And sort of getting that culture right, finding really strong leaders. Sarah Stamper, who runs our, our product and data and research teams, You know, her background is not from the political world. She's a a dual PhD from Hopkins in neuroscience and mechanical engineering who came at this from a behavioral science lens. Dan McSwain, who, who does a lot of our, our work, making sure that we're, we're finding great groups in the space and driving impact with them, right? He does come from a political background. He, you know, he, he was on the email team in Obama 2008, but, but came at that through actually a love of music. So bringing these leaders together, getting the culture right, making sure we have the right North Star, and then, and then frankly, getting out of the way. And letting all the different teams across Helm, whether they're building different tools and products, whether they're trying to understand the electorate better, whether they are trying to really understand the science of of local organizers, like let them go do their jobs. What are other key uh, players in your company? Well, I mentioned Sarah Stamper, who who really drives kind of the, the fusion of our very research-driven, listening to our users, listening to the groups in the space, studying the electorate, and then feeding that back into, you know, how do we serve them better? Sarah's key, Dan's key. On Sarah's team, you know, we we have some really key leaders who have been doing this kind of work for a while before us. So uh, Nathan Ramia, who joined us from DEC and Blue Labs, Right. And, and is our VP of product and has been doing kind of work around organizing and in particular down ballot local races for, for most of his career. Ben Calvin, who leads our data team, joined us from Blue Labs as well. Uh, he worked on the Ripple product there uh, and really trying to understand early versions of graphs, which is very relevant for the work we're doing on the civic graph. On our research agenda, you know, on Sarah's team, Erica, Weiss, who joined us from Harvard and Stanford and leads our whole behavioral science team. And her whole background academically was understanding empathy development and pro-social behavior. And how do you get people to kind of come back into community with each other, which is a really you know key element of what we do in sort of understanding human civic behavior and how do we produce better outcomes. So those, those are some of the, the, the really key leaders. It seems to me like your role as CEO must have some complexity in intermediating between Emma and the board and your team. And if all the funding is coming from her, that's a situation where she has a tremendous amount of power, of course. How do you think about that relationship with the board in terms of governing and and playing out your role as CEO? I mean, obviously, like managing managing all of the different stakeholders from all of the really talented people across town who actually do the work and support these, these, these groups and, and support organizers working with key leaders across the organization. The board is no different. Em and I communicate a lot and, um, are very, very aligned on long-term strategy and 
Uh, a lot of our conversations are really about how do we build a richer participatory democracy? How, how do we create that sort of multicultural democracy that allows full certification? How, how do we build towards that more equitable future? But we also get really into the weeds. In I think one of the areas in which Emma and I and a lot of the other board members of Helm are really aligned is recognizing that if you want to do this really big, impactful work, you you also have to get culture right and you have to figure out finer points of where data is going to come from and how do you put that data together and what's the product roadmap and what's the strategy. So there's a fair amount of that, but it's not a sort of a dynamic where once a quarter we sit down and have a board meeting. Like the M and I, the board and I are are really regularly in conversation about what we're seeing in the world, what we're learning and how do we do our work better. How do you figure out together what amount of resources are available to apply to this? I mean, with a lot of other companies that you've been in charge of before, you might have to go raise another round. What's the analog here? And how do you decide what size business makes sense when one of the ways you get resources is by selling the product, but the rest is, I think, long-term funding? I think one of the things that I appreciate deeply about the relationship that Helm has with Murmuration and personally, you know, Emma as a co-founder and as the chairman of the board, is that when push comes to shove, I think every hard decision we've had to make, the first question that gets asked is what's the right thing to do in the long term and, and how is that going to actually help us to accomplish our mission to build a division that we want to see in the world? So th- there's that. And and that is always kind of the the first North Star for the organization is the importance and the impact of the work that we're doing. Obviously, the more that we bring in additional resources, the more that we provide value to customers and partners that are actually out doing this work, and that brings revenue back in, the more resources that we have to reinvest in building what we're doing. And in the long run, it it is important for us to be on a trajectory towards profitability, mainly because that gives us um, more resources, more 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 things that we can invest in helping more groups do this work better, more organizers on the ground engaging with more people in better ways. But that's, you know, maybe previous to other organizations that I've run, the sort of um, order of primacy is is first and foremost, do the right thing in the long term, build the impact. And then secondarily, what's going to allow us to become sustainable in the long run? What's going to bring more resources in? How do we know that we really are driving value? And, and really only, although we are a for-profit organization, Really only at the, at the third level would we ever talk about sort of what's going to create enterprise value, which might have been a much more, that question is probably inverted in previous organizations I've run, right? The, the, the first question is often what's going to create long-term shareholder value. The second question is, is profitability and sustainability and only third would be impact here, here. And I think in a really healthy way, given the nature of the work that we do, that's inverted. And that's a, that's a good thing. What do you tell employees about that when typically in tech startups, they might have some share of the upside. If they're in early, they might have stock options. Is that present in this or how do you handle that kind of incentives? You know, what's the line about your brand is your culture manifested outward and your product is, is your culture manifested inward? Like there's really no gap between the conversation you and I have had versus a conversation that I would have with, with any Hellmate. And you know, we do monthly cohorts and we go through Helm University when they join and, and we talk through all of these things. The motivator for people who are doing the great work at Helm every day is, is ultimately our mission. 
and and the impact that they can have. A, a lot of people, right? We have people who've come to helm from existing work in politics or organizing or or advocacy. But a lot of a lot of the hellmates, a lot of the people who are doing really game changing work that we're deeply proud of, are more like me, right? They they felt a calling. They were doing work in other areas and sort of felt a calling over the last um, six or eight years to say I. I really, really need to allocate my talent to trying to protect this democracy and trying to make sure our kids inherit a better future. And that's, um, you know, that's where we generally anchor the proposition to the people who, who make up Helm to, to sort of come here and stay here. What kind of impact do you think Helm is making out there so far? Well, we talked about Alaskans for better elections. We have a Republican senator who who you or I or any number of people at Helm, certainly a lot of Democrats may disagree with on various issues, but came out and said publicly that, um, you know, she would she would support a clean bill that that enacted Roe as, as law, has supported a number of things like that. It's certainly better than the alternative that might have won a Republican primary. And part of the reason that Murkowski has that freedom of movement is because we got um, ranked choice voting and open primaries enacted. We did a lot of work in 2020 in the runoffs in Georgia with woke vote. That was really, really doing like on the ground, knocking on doors, talking to people, vote tripling work to turn out low propensity, underrepresented voters in a hair thin election. Those are things that we're, we're really proud of. A lot of the work that Murmuration does, like all of a sudden people are paying attention to school board races and local (laughs) clerk races, and they should be because they're incredibly important. I think, you know, if, if, the Alito decision does hold and Roe is overturned. I think a lot of people are going to be very, very focused on state legislative races, and they should be. Murmuration has been doing that kind of on the ground, community building, local election, getting people to turn out for what are traditionally very low turnout races so that we can actually produce better schools that support better communities for a long time. Very proud of that work. Evan, what's your biggest challenge right now? I'll answer that in two very different ways. At a very macro level, what I worry about for the country is that we are somewhere fairly far into being a frog that is boiled. And every few months or every few weeks, something that we we didn't imagine could happen, happens. But then things go back to normal for a little while, right? And, and that's, that's my sort of overarching concern. And, and a lot of the, a lot of the support we try to provide for organizers who are actually out doing this work, trying right now to engage voters, to show up, to vote, to protect our democracy, to do things that we need to do to make sure that we can be sitting here in January 2025 talking about what we need to do to go forward on building a more equitable future. Like, a lot of it is is getting people to pay attention and and shaking off complacency and to actually engage. That really, really concerns me. There's a lot of stuff that feels bad in America today. And and we got to fix all of that stuff. But if we lose our democracy, fixing all that stuff that makes us feel bad gets so much harder. That's a big answer. Other big challenges just internally or more within that. We've talked again about we we look at this very comprehensively, which is how do you ultimately make this kind of work? Like, how do you actually help more people in more local communities to do more organizing more effectively? 
And, you know, I think a lot of people operate with a lot of assumptions about what works without actually a lot of real hard research and data and insight. And so the hero of the sort of journey at Helm is always that that person who is organizing, oftentimes without even being formally affiliated with a campaign, right? Who is out there organizing in their community to make their communities better, to engage more people in the process. And and really, really understanding that person and really understanding their needs and their wants so that when all these pieces come together, we really are able to start creating campaigns that work backwards from the person doing the work on the ground and what they need and how we empower them. That's a big cognitive jump for a lot of campaigns. It's hard work because I don't think a lot of people do really understand that. I think that's where a lot of the first generation of relational organizing broke down is that it was built around campaigns' views of what they wanted their supporters to do, not actually backwards from how do you empower these people and give them what they need and let the campaigns sort of <laughs> let them loose. And so that's that's another area that's a big challenge and an incredibly interesting challenge. We talk a lot about sort of cracking the code, like really cracking the code on, on sort of hidden civic leaders and how to empower them. I, I want to take you back just a bit to this question of partisanship in this moment. We can see coming very likely from a, for a mile away, uh, Trumpist control of the government, uh, whether it's by Trump again and Congress turning over or DeSantis or someone like that. I understand and respect the point that you've made about finding a road down the middle or a road among the people who are pro-democracy, but the partisan conflict and who wins it's going to dictate a lot of our future. How do you think about those two things in your mind at the same time? Like how much the partisan conflict matters and how you're trying to find a different road. You started the question with an interesting frame, which I think you sort of referenced the middle. Right, that sort of there's there's two parties and there's a middle. I don't know. I mean, based on a lot of the data that we look at, um, based on a lot of the research and focus groups that we do, I, I would perhaps position that differently, which is I think part of what we have to guard against if we want to protect our democracy, build a better democracy, really achieve the sort of aspirational vision of the first truly multicultural democracy that affords full participation, like to really get to that place. There's just a lot of Americans who don't feel recognized or seen within the current sort of political identities in America. And some of those people might perceive themselves as in the middle. Some of those people might perceive themselves as more progressive than where the Democratic Party's at, right? There's there's a lot of a lot of people and a lot of perspectives, I think, given where our democracy has gotten at, who who are feeling left behind and are feeling disillusioned. That's an incredibly interesting question and challenge and problem right now. You know this party identification for both parties is at a is at a low point over the last 50 years and even a low point over the last 10 or 15 years. Like the number of Americans who perceive themselves as sort of independent is is at a high point in, in 15 years, 50 years. And so I think part of like for Democrats to win, they have to mobilize a really broad coalition, right? And a lot of those coalition members are 
like the popular front, as we discussed, right? And, and a lot of those different um, members of that coalition aren't necessarily feeling heard right now, and they're not necessarily seeing the messengers of the Democratic Party representing them. And so, you know, we think it's really important to bring more groups to the table with more messengers in more ways and more organizing strategies to try to reach out and get those groups to be heard. And for the foreseeable future, there's only two choices they can vote for. But that doesn't mean that there's only two choices who can make them feel heard, feel seen and engaged with. And that may change. I mean, I, I think some of the stuff like Evan Olin in Utah is really, really interesting. And if that works, and you look at the Senate map in 2024, you may be seeing a lot more people like Evan McMullen going, well, we have states with unpopular Republicans in which a Democrat probably can't win, but somebody with the profile of McMullen might be able to. And, and so I think there's there may well be more creativity in how we create that popular front and what we need to do to defeat authoritarianism over the next several years than we we imagine right now. I always get a little confused by people who think very narrowly about the parties, who think of the Democratic Party as only, you know, the party committees and the state parties and things like that, rather than the broad coalition you referenced, which includes progressive groups, which includes people who are uh, anti-Republican, which includes an awfully unmanageable and complex front. We, we are spending a lot of time right now researching and studying, you know, disaffected progressives. It's a significant voter block. It's probably a necessary voter block for us to come through the next several years. They're feeling very alienated right now from the Democratic Party and from Biden, and they feel like none of their priorities have been, been achieved. They're expressing very low uh, enthusiasm to turn out and vote. From our perspective, that is just as important a part of the pro-democracy coalition of the popular front as, you know, perhaps conservatives who don't like the authoritarian bent of the Republican Party and Trump and Trumpism, but don't necessarily align from a policy preference standpoint with where the Democratic Party is at. Like, we've got to figure out how to engage disaffected progressives and disgruntled conservatives if we're going to come through this with a healthier democracy and an ability to move forward. I couldn't agree more. If you could just take one swing at, at helping me understand how does Helm actually fit into to pulling that all together? What is the role of your company in furthering those designs that we both agree on? Number one, give groups that are going out and doing the hard work of organizing neighborhood by neighborhood, door by door, conversation by conversation, with the intelligence to understand what kinds of segments, what kinds of personas do we need to engage? Do they need to engage? What kinds of messages? What kinds of messengers? What permission structures need to be created? Do that fundamental research on behalf of that movement collectively, because no one group in the space, by and large, can afford to do that on their own. Number two, give them the data to understand who to go talk to and what conversations to have with them. And we are really interested in building that data, not around the voters who are always consistently going to turn out for the Democratic Party, and certainly not the voters who are always consistently going to turn out for the Republican Party, but everybody else, right? 
So data. And then the third part is giving them the tools to make it much easier to scale that work and do it better. How do we help more groups do better work using that data? And some of that is, is very enterprise tools. You know, or, or, you know, how do we help them to take data, slice and dice, send out different outreach communications, do all that stuff, you know, run digital advertising. A lot of it is is the tools that we're we're working on that we think are going to be very transformational that we want to put directly in the hands of often unseen leaders at the neighborhood level, super organizers, right? Super volunteers, super organizers to allow them to do more work better for their communities. Does that end up on the bottom line as a alternate tech data analytics stack than the two parties have? Yeah. Our lens is we want to give organizers, period, (laughs) who are um, doing work that we believe will advance the dream, the fight for a truly multicultural democracy that affords full civic participation. Superpowers. That's it. Give them better insights, better tools, better capabilities, and empower them to go do their work better. It does sound like a interesting and ambitious project, and I feel very honored to have a chance to talk to you about it. Is there a question I failed to ask that I should have? I don't think so. I, we covered an awful lot of ground, and I I probably learned as much from uh, this conversation in terms of some of the ways you framed things. I may use that popular front. Uh, I think I uh, stole that from a guest, but yes. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. No, I, I, I really appreciated the conversation and I appreciate all the work that, that you do to kind of get this information out to the groups that are doing this kind of organizing and that are um, trying to do this very important work. Excellent to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, all good. That was Evan Burfield. Evan is at helmteam.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.